January 23, 2011, lecture discussion number 30 on the book of Romans. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, let's see. Uh, I made a valiant attempt to speed through 2 Samuel uh, 12, 7 through 25 last week uh, so that we could return to Romans 3 this Sunday. Uh, but um, uh, alas, if you will, for lack of a better term, I came up one mountain short of the runway. It didn't quite get done. You know, I had the uh, five pounds of fertilizer in a four-pound bag, whatever. The one I always remember in this is the uh, the arrow missed my apple by six inches low. In any event, you pick your analogy or insert your own, whatever you want to do. But um, I my plan was to have a three-Sunday uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and I'm on my fourth Sunday now, and I'm going to push a fifth because I've got to include a little bit of Second uh, Samuel 24. I've done some of that already, and uh, all of, uh, if, I, if I can, First uh, Samuel 28. And when we're done with the Samuels, hopefully we will have answered the great question of Romans 3:10 uh, through 18, which, as you know, that question is, why did David write the following? And he wrote more than just this. I just picked this out because it is the, the most powerful. The rest of it is equally powerful, obviously, but I don't include it uh, just because of time constraints. But you should know all of it is there. Why did David write, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. I'm beating that into you. know, I know Isaiah and Solomon are in there as well, and we should get it all. And Paul put it in, and he included that specifically uh, because he was trying to prove something. What was he trying to prove? This uh, confession of David and the wisdom of Solomon and Isaiah that is all in in Romans 3, 10 through 18, why is it there? It is there because of what? It's evidence. It's evidence and proof of something. What is it evidence and proof of? You are obviously the honors portion of the class you came on this particular day. You are not the football fans. Or you have TiVos. Is there such a thing as TiVo anymore? Maybe. DV, huh? 24 to 3 Pittsburgh. Those of you who are now waiting to go home to watch the game, we have rent it for you. We're sorry. Ha! We're not. We're not sorry. Not a bit. We don't particularly like Pittsburgh, I will say that. There is one amongst you that hates Green Bay. In any event, why did Paul do this? It is evidence. It is a proof of something. What is it a proof of? It is the proof of his thesis statement of the book of Romans, God's thesis statement, if you will. The just shall live by faith. That's the thesis statement. And it is proved by the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12. And how is that so? And that's what we're trying to solve. Hopefully, many of you have already figured that out. You have linked the confession of David with salvation by grace alone. David understood that it was salvation by grace alone. He understood that it could not possibly be earned. How did he know that, by the way? 
because he had salvation. How did he get it? Well, he certainly didn't earn it, and he knew that better than anybody. Any of you who think you have earned your salvation, or you have the potential to earn your salvation, have what? You have a, you have a destructive understanding of yourself. You're in difficulty. David knew there's no possibility he would earn his salvation. It had to be given to him. And he really got that hammered into him in 2 Samuel 12. So that is why it is in here, and hopefully we'll consider all those interconnections. You'll begin to mull it over, and you'll figure out why Paul put it where he put it, why the Holy Spirit had Paul put it there, and how it is a proof of the just shall live by faith, which is a statement of grace alone is salvation. Through grace alone is salvation. I ended last week's lecture with David's statement. This is a very wise statement, very profound truth. He says, when the child is declared dead, the child of Bathsheba, the first son of Bathsheba, he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That's 2 Samuel 12:23, and that's powerful, very powerful. Don't pass that by. Don't think you understand it. Do not think it's simple. It is not simple. If you think you have understood what David meant by, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me, if you have gone by that quickly or think you have got it, uh, I'm going to tell you, slow down. You possibly have made an error. That is a very complicated, powerful verse. Many questions hidden in there. And as I mentioned, it's necessary, uh, as I said a few minutes ago, it's necessary to compare David at 2 Samuel 12, 16 through 24, which is where we are today, to Saul at 1 Samuel 28. What happens in 1 Samuel 28 to Saul? That is the famous medium or witch of Endor. That is where Saul is told by Samuel that it, and some don't believe that Samuel, by the way, they think that's a fraud. We'll get into that discussion. We have to. But in any event, uh, Saul is told that he's about to die. And he has an, an interesting response to that. And you compare his response to David's response when he finds out the child is to die. So, that's necessary to do that, and we'll take that on next week. I won't be able to do the comparison justice. I won't. So you'll have to read ahead and get it down as, as best you can. I know one of you reads ahead. I won't point him out, but his initials are Steve Swanson. I'm very proud of him. The rest of you, pretend that you read ahead and try to get a good idea what this is, because we'll ha hit it next week, and I can't do it justice. Don't have time. Don't, don't think I can afford to take the time, but at least we'll cover it and we'll get the most obvious of the obvious questions done. Anyway, all of that is to answer Romans 3, 9 through 18, why it is where it is and what it means. And before we begin, I want to uh, take a little time to talk about my trip to California. Because I went, and I went to a movie, which I hate movies, because I can't talk during the movie. So what bothers me the most about people in the movie? The ones that talk during the movie. Drives me crazy. So what do I do to them all movie long? I tell them, shh, shh, shh. And usually it's my wife and her sister. And that's who it was. But anyway, I went to the movie, 
in California, and I didn't know if I would like it or not. I hoped I would. Lots of people told me it was really good, and so I'm there at the movie trying to eat popcorn as much as I possibly can stuff into myself because I'm trying to get my $30 worth. $30 for popcorn and a soda. and Another 30 for the movie. Pretty soon a movie will cost the same as a professional sports event. The parking at least. Anyway, I was delighted to hear the thesis statement of this movie uttered almost immediately. And if you want to know what the movie is, come and see me. I'll, I'll tell you. And I, Actually, I recommend it because it is clearly a theological movie. It is about uh, redemption. It is about justice. It is about judgment. It is about salvation. So I was fascinated to hear the thesis almost right off the bat because the thesis is Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4. Isn't that great? It's a Romans, it's a Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4 movie. It fits right in. And that, of course, is the just shall live by faith. That's what the thesis of the movie was. And it was reworded a little bit uh, for the popular uh, masses that are going to say it. I'll give you the actual thesis statement of the movie as best I can. I'm not positive I got it right, but I believe it is very close to this. Nothing is free but the grace of God. That is the thesis of that movie. That's how it starts. That, That theme is all the way through it. Nothing is free but the grace of God. That is an absolute truth. Absolute truth. And the, and the author of that uh, uh, book, by the way, knew that. And the movie was made from a book written in the 60s. But he knew that when he wrote it. And, and that was common knowledge to that culture in the United States 150 years ago. Everyone knew it. Everyone in the Civil War era knew it. Everyone knew it. The only thing free for us is the grace of God. And everyone at that time knew that. Not so today. Hardly anyone knows that today. Today, people readily fall for silly little slogans and tricks, like buy one, get one free. No one 150 years ago would have fallen for that. They would have all said nothing is free but the grace of God. But today, we really think, ooh, I buy one, I get one free. No, you don't. No, you won't. My personal favorite is, it's a hundred dollar value, yours for five ninety nine. But wait, it stuns me that this works. It's all over the place. It works because people do not understand that nothing is free but the grace of God. The second one is not free, is it? You didn't buy one and get another one for free, did you? What did happen to you? You paid twice as much for the first one. Okay? That's what you did. And if you think, well, I didn't... It's the regular price for the first one. I paid the regular price for the first one and I got the second one for free. If that's what you think, then what did you do? You got cheated on the first one all these years. Nothing is free but the grace of God. You you have to become wise. And if you start with that, and that's why I just love that movie starting out with that. Bang! 
That sets the tone. People that understand that have tremendous wisdom. They're not fooled by Madison Avenue very often. As you know, there's no such thing as a free kitten. Try it. There's no free puppies. There's no free cars. There's no free houses. There's no free money. It astonishes me now that I am approaching um, uh, an advanced age. And it is obvious to all who see me, uh, I'm starting to get phone calls from people who think I'm stupid, which makes me worry. As they're assuming if I'm not stupid today, maybe I'll be stupid tomorrow, but they know stupid is coming, and so they're pounding me with these telemarketing phone calls, and I love to get them, as you know. But it's all about, you have won so much money. No, I haven't. There's no free money. How does this stuff keep working? We used to be told when I was a kid, back when Lincoln had just been assassinated, Andrew Johnson had become president, even though Grant was more popular, eventually took over. We were told that there was no such thing as a free lunch. We knew there was no free lunch. Today, everyone thinks there's a free lunch. Everyone knew that once, but they don't know it anymore. Just know that there's vet bills for your kitten. There's poop scooping for your puppy. There's chewed scratch furniture and car seats. Ask Ask Lindsay, there's gasoline that you have to buy for your free car insurance. My favorite is this, uh, uh, this uh, show uh, uh, where they bulldoze your house and call it a remodel. I don't know, what's, that? what's the name of that? Extreme makeover. They dynamite what's there and then they build something new. How's that a makeover? That, a remodel, that's just new construction. That seems ridiculous to me. But you know what happens to those homes? Have you, found, have you ever read what happens to the people? You have a poor poor family that cannot afford the house they're in. So they tear their house down and they build a really nice half million dollar house on, its pro- on that property. What happens to the family? Got to move out. How come? Can't afford the taxes, can't afford the insurance, can't afford the utilities, can't afford the maintenance. They get a little money, the IRS takes half of that. Now they don't have a home. A lot of them go out and borrow against the house and lose the house to foreclosure because they can't make the payments on the money they borrow. It's a mess. There's no free house. You have to replace windshields and transmissions and tires. You need paint. You have to water heaters that blow up. You've got to mow the lawn. You've got utilities. The taxes on my house are going to exceed the utilities and the house payment pretty soon. It's getting close. I'm going to have to sell my house that I, we have owned almost 25 years, and we're going to have to get rid of it because Lori and I can't pay the taxes. That's what's happening to us. I don't own the house, do I? You think I own the house? I don't. All I have to do is not pay the taxes and I'll find out who owns it. It isn't me. It's the municipality that owns it or the state, whatever the case may be, wherever you happen to live. In any event, you have taxes, responsibility, accountability, and judgment. Nothing is free but the grace of God. Get that in your head and do not be fooled by anything else. That is why I started out loving the movie. The movie could have stopped after that. I wouldn't have cared. Learn to count the cost of everything else. Learn to find the cost. That's the hard thing. Notice the attached tentacles. I don't call them strings. They're tentacles. Read the fine print. And have no position that implies something else is free. Do you see how that's blasphemy? 
If you run around going, I've got it for free. That's heresy. Because nothing is free but the grace of God. And think about the implications of that because it's a great proof. Where do you find that? Where do you find nothing is free but the grace of God? Where do you find it? It's written down somewhere. I'll give you a hint. Where do you find it? Where is the only place that's at? The only place that statement is made is in Scripture, is in the Bible. Think about that for a second. Nobody else says that but the Bible. That's correct. They say the opposite. That's when I do my diagram all the time where I put how many religions say that salvation is by some kind of law or works-based system. Billions of them. Every religion says that. Which one says the opposite of that, that, that salvation is by grace alone? Only this one. That should make you pause right there. That is why you will protect uh, the, what is free, okay? You will know there is nothing free but grace. You'll understand it and you won't concede the language. You won't use the language and you won't fall for the tricks. You will have it all worked out. You'll recognize that it is a scam immediately. Now, while I move along with today's subject, I just did that because I felt like kind of ranting and raving today. I figured if you were going to come, you should at least get some ranting. Um, but I'm going to move along with today's subject now. And I want you, those of you who uh, do this kind of thing, I, I, my goal is to provide a place where you can rest. So those of you who sleep, you're doing great. And provide a place where you can think about stuff. If you happen to listen to the sermon, that's just gravy for me. So while I move along, I want you to consider the cost to you and the cost to others of your free will. Okay? I wanted to say feel free to ruminate on the price of free will, but I was afraid no one would laugh. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to 2 Samuel uh, 12. Here we go again. Hardcore workout today. Second Samuel 12. Let's go at. Uh, let's start at 15 today, so we can speed it along. Um, actually, maybe 14. Maybe I'll back up to 14. And this is Nathan saying this to David. The Lord. Uh, uh, I'll back up all the way to half of 13. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore. And that's very important. That's going to come up again here pretty soon. Ah, get this over here. The, the child is called by God. Or, I'm sorry, Bathsheba is called by God Uriah's wife. So what should you be on the lookout for now? You've got to ask a couple of questions. Why did God call... Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, Uriah is dead. 
And when does he stop calling her Uriah's wife? That's very important. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, how many days did this go? Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. Last week I said that they were worried about him harming who? Himself. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servant, he has this great question, incredible question. Is the child dead? And they said, I often wondered how they said this. Because it says, and they said, he is dead. What were they worried about? They all got together. How many of you think there were? It says they, so what's the obvious question? How much is they? How many is they? How many they's are they? Got to be at least a couple, huh? How come one guy didn't go and say, child is dead? They were worried about giving bad news to the king. Bad news... Being the bearer of bad news is not good news for you. You don't tell the king bad news very often. He has has a history of doing what to people who tell him people are dead? He kills them, that's right. Read about Saul. Don't take credit for killing somebody. So I can imagine they all went in there and they all said in unison, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went into his own house, and and that, by the way, is the temple. The only place that you can call the house of God is where? Is this the house of God? This building? No. What's the house of God? The temple is. Or the tabernacle of Moses. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when, he requ- and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is it that you have done? You fasted, and you wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell? The Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then this incredible statement. Wow. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba. What's it say? His wife. Notice that she has gone from Uriah's wife to David's wife, something extraordinary must have happened for God to make that change.
Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. David called him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord, beloved of the Lord. Now, right off the bat, certain words should leap off the page, leap out of the Scripture, and whoop us aside the head. And I hope they did when we read them together. I hope you read them with me, and I hope you start to ask questions. There is nothing irrelevant or of... Of not, uh, there's nothing inconsequential. There's everything is so important to every little tiny word, as you know. Clearly, David is in great despair here. He's mourning and he's in tremendous ang- anguish. And last week I said to you that uh, blessed are they, second beatitude, blessed are they, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are they that mourn. David is mourning. David is pleading with God. He's fasting. He's laying on the ground. He won't get up and he won't eat. And so obvious questions abound. Some we dealt with as I, last week, as you know, but a few of you missed that, and they bear repeating regardless. Especially, this is my uh, concession to the Internet group. They don't all get the same sermon, and they don't all get it at the same time. So I repeat some to keep as many uh, on the bus as I possibly can. So we'll do a little bit of that. Not much, I promise. Nathan, the heaven-sent man, the prophet, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, 14, was very specific, wasn't he? He didn't leave any doubt that he did not stutter. He said this to David, the child will die. The child will die in your place. There was no misunderstanding. So what's the obvious question? Why is David throwing himself under the dirt and not eating and fasting and pleading and begging and despairing and anguish? What's he trying to accomplish? David knew the child would die and he knew why the child would die. Why was the child dying? Huh? That's right, because of David's what? Yeah, the child is going to die in the place of David for the rape of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Then Nathan, you shall live, but the child will die. David knew that. The confessing David would live, because that comes right after, I have sinned against the Lord. David's saying that immediately to Nathan. And Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The child born shall surely die. So that, that juxtaposition, that interconnection is clear. And of course, this is one of the great types. It's one of the great portraits, shadows of Jesus Christ, right? The child, the innocent Child born, dying in the place of the, of the sinner. This is the Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Did it last week. Unto us a child is born. And in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, oops, did I spell that? Isaiah, I got an, I'm missing an I, an A. Isaiah, how come I can't spell when I look at it? I have to go back and look at it. I had it right. 
It looks funny when you look at it on the board. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Very important to notice the two that are there. The child born and the son given. Unto us a child born and a son given. Those are the two comings of Christ. There's one and there's two. So whenever you see child born, you know that that's the first advent of Christ. That's the Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. So this is, again, one of the great shadows, one of the great types of Jesus Christ. Okay, This is the two comings. The first coming of Christ was for the child born to what? To die. The first coming of Christ was to provide a substitutionary atonement death for the believing confessors. Because the justice of God required that the penalty of the law be exacted. Here's your choice. Your choice is either the murderer rapist David would die or the child born would die. That's your choice. And that can't be changed. It cannot be changed. So why is David throwing himself on the ground pleading and begging? He knew it can't be changed. It can't be changed. Someone has to die. And it won't be David. So it's the child born which is a picture of Christ. And David knew that, as I said last week, previous lecture. David was not begging for justice to be set aside. David was praying for the child to live. And if the child lives, what does that mean for David? David dies. So what is David doing? He's mourning for his sin. Blessed are they that mourn for their sin. David is saying, I don't want the child to die. I want to die. And God's not going to do that. Why not? Well, lots of reasons why not. David confessed. This is a picture of Christ. We have the Davidic covenant. Lots of reasons. And this is the connection, by the way. This is why this connects to 2 Samuel 24, where David also sins wickedly. He conducts a census without the atonement, the blood money. In other words, you're not to count people without blood because that is a, that is a statement that salvation can be attained without blood. And salvation cannot be. Salvation is by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that was a wicked thing he also did because he knew that wasn't to be done. He had read Exodus 30. Everyone knew. Even Joab knew you don't count people without the blood money. Why are you doing so wickedly is the question asked to David in the midst of that. And he admits that it is a great evil and, his, and people are dying everywhere. 70,000 men. If 70,000 men die, there might be as many as 200,000 total that die. And David screams and pleads to God. Second Samuel Samuel 24, 17, let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my house. I'm the one that did this. So twice we see David coming to God, willing to accept his judgment, mourning in anguish that another dies in his place. Next, I want you to notice that David is laying in the dust, in the dark, and he won't get up. Let me start again. 
David is in the dust, in the dark, and he won't get up. What's that? Dead. Absolutely right. In the dust, in the dark, won't get up. Why is he doing this? He refuses, let me keep going. He refuses to be raised up. He wishes to stay in the ground and he won't eat. What's he saying? Take me. Let me die. Let the child live. And hopefully I framed that in a way that you've spotted Genesis 3:17 through 19. Anybody spot Genesis 3:17 through 19? In the dust, won't get up. In the dark, let me read it for you, so you'll see it. Okay, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. You're in the dirt. In the dark. And I want you to put that together. We'll get to it a little bit more next week. Well, keep moving. Next, when's the child die? The seventh day. What's that? If I say seventh day to you, you say what back to me? Sabbath. That's right. Child dies on the Sabbath before the eighth day. What's the eighth day? That's the circumcision day, by the way. But the child dies. Before the Sabbath. And this is the son would have been circumcised. Dies, I'm sorry, dies before circumcision on the Sabbath. Very important. And the great question is asked, is the child dead? What's another way of putting that? Why did he ask, is the child dead? What's he really asking? He's asking, has the penalty been paid? Because when the child is dead, the penalty has been paid. And the servants say, they said, the child is dead. Or, if you will, the substitutionary death has come. And it has been what? Accepted. How do we know that? Is David still alive? Remember, remember this. Always, always read the Old Testament searching for the person and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You've got to, you've got to train yourself to do that, John 5.39. Then this amazing sequence comes. It's amazing. And I really, I'm almost reluctant to give it to you because I want you to start finding these things on your own. But it's extraordinary. And it should just, like I said, smack you. You have this sequence. Arose. Washed. Anointed. Changed. Went. 
worshipped. There they are. Arose, washed, anointed, changed, went, worshipped. Let me read it again to you. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Obviously, this is what? First, he's in the ground, in the dust, in the dark, won't eat, won't get up. Now he what? That's the first thing he did. He arose, and then he washed. So first, he's in the ground, in the dust, in the dark, won't eat and won't get up. And now he what? He arises. What made him arise out of the dust, out of the dark, out of the dirt, without eating? What made him arise? What was the event that made him get up? The death of the child born. Clearly, this is resurrection language. All of us, all of you, I know all of you, I look around, there's no visitors. Finally, we don't have to make fun of the visitors today. There aren't any. Okay, there's hardly ever any visitors. I do scare the visitors. But I'm confident that all of you, all of us, will someday arise from the ground. And what will happen next? You're going to be washed. And then you're going to be cleansed. You're going to be transformed. And you're going to put on immortality. And then you're going to go into the throne room of Jesus Christ, who is God, and give thanks and glory to Him who died in our place. All believers, all saved, all who repent, confess, who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, will go through this exact process, this exact order. Arose, arise, washed, anointed, changed, went, worships. All of that. That's you. That's me. That's the pattern. Hmm? That's true. All of us who are dead in Christ. But even the ones that are, are alive in Christ will be pulled up into the air, and then what will happen to them? Washed, anointed, changed, worship, went, worshipped. Okay? Arise from the dust, be washed and anointed, receive a white garment, go to the throne room, see Christ face to face. There's your order. When somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to die, what happens next? The servants of David are greatly puzzled. They cannot understand what has happened and they don't see the lesson, they don't see the truths that are before them, so they ask, what is it that you have done? You fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. Now let me put it another way for them. You mourned, they said to David. You were in great despair. You were laying in the dirt, in the dark, starving. Before the death of the child born. Let me put it another way. You were in mourning. You were in hopeless despair. You're dying. You're going back to the dust. You're in the dark. You're starving to death before the crucifixion of Christ. See that? Now, 
you rise up and live. And that's the typology. And hopefully you have that or the first part of it, of, of the typology here. It is, as I like to say now, the most obvious of the obvious. Now here comes the difficult section. This is uh, what Nick calls the, uh, the gifted program part. Okay? I considered just stopping here when I was doing this. I said, wow, I should just stop and see if you guys, on your own, could take it from here. Because I'm really confident that you can. I know that you can. Yes, sir. What's that? Yeah, it's interesting that this child is not named. And that's very important. He, he, he's just called the child born. And that helps you in your typological uh, side of things. It is uh, Solomon, if you're confusing, that is named. Not or Jedediah, to be more accurate. Okay? Anyway, I'm confident you could do the rest of it. I, I really am. This is kind of like putting the question. So I'm not going to answer it. I'm just going to give you some questions to ask from here on out. You just have to ask the correct questions. Let me read it again. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. What does that mean? Does that mean something really, really special? What does it mean? Let me ask you a question. I shall not go to him. Where is the child born? Child, it's a child. It has no accountability. And that child is where? That is in the throne room of God. The literal, literal, there actually was a child that died. So typologically, let me put it this way. That child is saved, the small child is saved. But now I'm going to ask it this way. Where is the child born? Who's, who is the child born? That's Christ. So let's, let's apply this statement to Christ. I shall go to him. Where is he? He's on the throne, isn't he? Okay? Is he coming back? He is. Is he coming back for David? How does this work? When does he go to the throne? After what? After his death, after his crucifixion, after his ascension, right? After the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, what is the status of Christ is ultimately what I'm asking you there. He is glorified, isn't he? His robe is back on him. He sets his robe aside. He sets his glory aside when he leaves heaven and comes down to earth where he does what in his first advent? He doesn't have his glory with him. He is not recognized as God. The Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 gives you a description of his glory, calls it a robe, uh, his huge, massive robe that fills up the real temple. You see, the temple down here is a facsimile of the heavenly temple that's made without hands. So they have a relationship. By the way, so does your physical body. He asked you this question, do you know you are patterned after the temple of heaven? Do you understand that the mosaic tabernacle and you, your physical structure, has a relationship? You have to know that. That helps you, by the way, uh, through a lot of issues. Anyway, Christ is revealed for who he is 
after his redemptive work is finished and his humiliation complete, his humiliation is, and his redemptive work is in the prophet stage of his ministry, if you will. Prophet, high priest, king. The prophet stage is, de- is finished. He's not coming back again as the child, is he? That portion of his redemptive work, or the prophet, he's not coming back as a savior. If you have him coming back as a savior, what have you said? Theologically, you have said that his work wasn't finished. He comes the next time as what? King. He came once to die. Once to die. Just once. You can't have him return to die again. And David will now go to him. David will not mourn. David will eat. David will not despair over death. David will rejoice. David has no power over death. He does not know when God will end sin. So he will be found in prayer for the end of death and sin. David gets sick of death. Sick of it. He gets sick of people dying in his place. It's interesting that once it was a child, the next time it's almost 250,000 people. And he gets sick of it. So should we all be. That's a few of the pieces. I didn't answer it for you on purpose because I wanted to read 1 Samuel 28. How come I wanted to read 1 Samuel 28 when it was your assignment? Because I didn't think you would read your assignment. And I want to make sure you get it while it's fresh in your mind. What are we looking for here? We're looking for the same thing that we just studied or the same thing we just read. Now, verse 3, 28-3, 1 Samuel. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunan. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Bad day, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. And this is, lady is often referred to as the witch of Endor. So, Paul disguised himself. By the way, is she a bad lady? Bad lady, we all know that. Bad lady. Saul, bad guy. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's keep reading. So, so, uh, David, a good guy, bad guy. What did David think of David? Bad. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went. 
and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Because Saul wasn't completely stupid. By the way, Saul was a giant of a man, a big, powerful man. How many people look like him? Not too many. This would be like, imagine that you're, you're running a little, you know, seer shop down on 4th Avenue and you're doing uh, uh, astrology and, and fortune telling and all kinds of nonsense and you've got a little bit of a scam going. You've got, you know, uh, uh, different recording devices and different ways. You, and you're pretty good at reading people and in walks Shaquille O'Neal. He's disguised. Like trying to trying to disguise an elephant as a chihuahua it isn't going to work. So, when it says so, Saul disguised himself. Well, chances are that may not work. This is a clever woman. Then the woman said to him, "Look, you know what Saul has done. How he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. What's she thinking? <laughs> You're Saul." And you're coming to kill me if I tell you I'm a spiritist or a medium. I'm not going to be, you know, hung here. Why do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out in a loud voice. She is terrified. Because this ain't how the game goes for her. Something is not working right. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Duh! And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. He's bowing to Samuel, or to what he thinks is Samuel. We'll get into that next week. Because there's two views there. There's the Samuel view, and there's the non-Samuel view. How many of you have the Samuel view? Raise your hands, be aggressive. Never raise your hands here. And for you. How many of you have the non-Samuel view? A couple of you do. Good. We'll debate. Now Samuel said to Saul, who wrote this? Who wrote it? God wrote it. I want you to deal with that verse. Now Samuel said to Saul. What's it say? Samuel said to Saul. Verse 15. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? doesn't say the fake Samuel. It says Samuel. Uh-oh. And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, Who? Samuel. Uh-oh. Maybe, maybe the... 
Maybe it's possible that there's a mistake. Uh-oh. So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? That ain't good news. And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. By who? By me. Who's the me in the sentence? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Then Samuel. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. By the way, is that good? Is that good? Where's Samuel, if that's Samuel? That's, that could be good news, huh? You're going to be dead, but you're going to be what? With Samuel, if that's Samuel. If you have the Samuel view or the non-Samuel view, whichever view you have. I just want you to have one. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately, this is what I wanted to cover. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. Sorry to keep bringing that up. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled. Do you see the connections now? And said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused. I will not eat. So his servants together. you see this? And by the way, Samuel came to Saul. The child would not come to David. Do you see that too? So his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house. What's she going to do? Is this a good woman or a bad woman? And she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. See you next week.